Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you are listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Artists and Authors podcast. I'm very pleased to say that we have Julia Fine on the show today. She graduated from Grinnell in 2010, and we'll be talking about her life and her work as a novelist, and particularly her terrific new book, The Upstairs House, which came out from HarperCollins in 2021. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. The traditional question on the New Books Network, or first question on the New Books Network is, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Yeah, well, I am, um, I guess at this point, can firmly call myself a novelist. I have two books out and one on the way, which just feels very, feels like you wait a very long time to maybe be able to say that that's your job. Um, usually I just say, oh, I'm a writer and I teach, but I am a writer. Um, so I write primarily novels, occasional essays, uh, and I teach writing. I'm on the core faculty at Story Studio in Chicago, uh, which is a sort of adult, well, they have, they have kid programs too, but I mostly teach adults um, who are either interested in learning more about creative writing, thinking about going back to get MFAs, uh, just sort of want to have a project they've been wanting to work on. And Story Studio offers sort of the equivalent of what you might get if you went back to graduate school um, in terms of different types of writing classes, uh, interactions, networking with different writers. And it is not a graduate program. Uh, It's a nonprofit. So that's been a really fun career move in the past two years to be affiliated with them. I've been teaching for them for a while, uh, but only I think in 20, the time I, for everyone, I'm sure time just sort of has muddled together now that we're all, you know, uh, since, since 2020. Uh, but I think, I think in 2021, I joined the core faculty, but it may have been sooner. Uh, either way, I'm there now and I specialize in genre fiction, but really do sort of all sorts of different things for them. Um, and then I also teach for Catapult, uh, which is another sort of online, it's the educational arm of the Catapult Publishing Company, um, and then one-offs here and there. Uh, but yeah, mostly mostly novels. Um, my first book came out in 2018, and my second came out in 2021, and hopefully the third will come 2023-ish. Uh, so that's still in the works. That's great. Congratulations on all that. And you're also a mother. We're going to be talking and, about yes, that. I have yes. two, two young children. I have um, a four-and-a-half-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. Yeah, we'll, we'll be talking about that because it's relevant to the upstairs house. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about Grinnell since this is a Grinnell College podcast. Why did you decide to go to Grinnell? Oh, gosh. So I, I grew up um, outside of Washington, D.C., and literally everyone, when I said I was going to school in Iowa, said, we don't know where that is um, <laughs> and why. And it's funny because I, my grandfather, this is like a roundabout way of telling the story, but it is why I decided to go to Grinnell. Um, my grandfather sort of came back from World War II and on the GI Bill had gone to the University of Iowa. Um, and he is New York, born and raised, and he was you know, very, very East Coast, uh, but he had gone out to Iowa for a few years and he had these wonderful memories and said, you know, you should go look at schools in Iowa. And I knew that I wanted to go to a small liberal arts college and I had applied to a ton of schools along the East Coast that sort of everybody else in my community (laughs) was looking at. Um, And then I got into Grinnell and they had the visit, you know, you could go out and do a visit and I went and visited and I thought like, this is just the perfect fit. It has everything that I'm looking for on, you know, from these East Coast 
liberal arts schools, but it's so much more my style and the people are so much weirder and better um, than who I seem to be meeting at all these other school tours. And so it sort of was a whim sort of of like, well, my grandpa likes Iowa, so I'll try it. And then it ended up being, I mean, my, I met my husband there, my best friends, like clearly the best decision I made of my life. Well, one of the best decisions of my life, but a very formative one. Uh, I agree with all that. I, I think going to Grinnell was one of the best decisions I, I ever made. Um, my uh, search for a college was not as systematic as yours, <laughs> but I did end up at the right place. And I'm very grateful to the people uh, at, at Grinnell for everything they did for me. Um, let's talk a little bit about what, what it is to be a novelist. How did you decide to become a novelist? This is a fascinating question for me because it's not as if you uh, open up the job ads and it says novelist. Yeah, no, they it, they certainly there certainly are no job ads. Um, but I had been interested in creative writing and had been writing since I was very young. And in high school, I did a lot of creative writing and submitted to contests and won a few awards. And then I actually I felt um, sort of like you said, there's no job ads for novelists. Like you need to support yourself. You need a career. What will you do? Um, and so. I did not take, I took one creative writing class in college. My senior year, I finally had room because I double majored um, in English and psychology and I went abroad. And so I had no room for anything that wasn't sort of on this very particular track, which I loved, uh, but also it just was like every class was English, psychology, or something required. Um, and so I finally, you know, senior year, took a creative writing class, really liked it, but still it was like, well, okay, now you're graduating, you need to make money. Um, and I graduated in 2010, which I think was slightly better perhaps than the few years before me, but not that much better in terms of job opportunities uh, with the recession. And so I started working. My first job out of college was selling yellow page ads over the phone, uh, which lasted about eight months, I think. Um, and then I switched and worked in PR. And that was definitely a more long-term sort of opportunity um, as the yellow pages were clearly on their way out in 2010. Uh, but I really didn't like it and I wanted something that would be sort of creatively fulfilling. And so I started writing again in the evenings and reading a lot and sort of thinking about what my ideal working life would look like. And everybody said, this is not really viable. Probably you should go to law school. Um, how will you make money doing this? And I was very cocky and I think mostly have ended up being very lucky because I just quit that job that I really hated. It was a very like intense sort of small family owned business where you had no life outside of work. And I nannied um, full time to pay the bills for a year and a half. And then I kept nannying. I applied for MFA programs and I got in to one in Chicago that funded me and I continued to nanny and then sort of added slowly added teaching in to sort of balance that out. Um, and I've been very, very lucky in that I have a husband then partner, still partner, but then boyfriend, now husband, um, who said, go for it, do this. Also, like, you know, I, I support this idea, uh, even while everyone, my parents were saying, mm, <laughs> you know, uh, and then I also just have been, I think I was fortunate to have written something that resonated and found the right people at the right time. Um, and the first book led to the second book, which led to the third book. And I just have, it, it it's luck. It's a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot like writing novels is literally just like spending 
a really long time by yourself thinking and writing and not interacting with people. Um, and so it definitely, I think you have to have the dis- the self-discipline and the drive and sort of the, the self-confidence uh, in a way that like, you know, you can get through this and do it. Um, but I will say it's gotten easier with every book I've written and it's the best job. I say job in air quotes because, you know, I'm not getting like a weekly paycheck. Um, it's almost like you're working on commission, but when you can make money doing it, it's amazing and being able to do it is amazing. And it basically has amounted to me just saying, what am I really interested in and how can I glom it together and try to write a book about it that maybe someone else will want to read? Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. I really liked what you said about the work aspect and the necessity of a certain amount of work discipline. Because one of the things I've discovered in my own career or careers is that you kind of have to embrace the grind that's what I call it. You have to embrace the grind. You have to be willing to put in the hours. And if you don't feel like you can, it's probably not the right thing for you. Oh, absolutely. But, but you really have to, you know, it's a little bit like athletics where you get to the point where you can't do it anymore and then you do it some more. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, and I think too, I, it's difficult because it was, it was one thing to write a book when I didn't have children. Um, and it's just such a different game when you have kids because it's not only the physical demands of, you know, like, oh, I need to feed my kids right now, but just mentally, like, you need to be present with your kids in a way. I mean, my husband probably is like, you know, I'd appreciate it if you're present for me, but as an adult, you know, he can fend for himself for long periods of time if I'm just sort of like daydreaming. Um, but with kids, it has had to be a much more deliberate sort of like, this is the writing time. I'm turning everything else off. You know, I'm going to not watch TV for six months because I'm reading a book. So, Right. Um, this is a, I don't know whether to ask this question or not. Would you have any advice for aspiring novelists? Is there anything you might say, like any nugget of wisdom that you like? Have Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think this idea that you need connections or an MFA program or sort of something that isn't just you and an idea and all the reading that you've ever done in your life is, you know, it's useful to have that. It's nice to have dedicated time, um, but you don't need, like all you really need and the thing that it will come down to again is like you sitting down and putting in the time and just working through it and being willing to throw away large chunks of the book in service of making it better. Um, And if you have, you know, if you've gone to school for it or if you know people who you think might boost you up, like that can be nice. But until you like get your butt in the chair and you actually write it, none of that is really going to matter. And so if that's something that you feel like is stopping you, it shouldn't because I know so many people who have gone to school and gotten master's degrees or who have the network, but it ultimately is not the thing that's going to sort of help you get through it. Um, I also would say, like, don't quit your day job. <laughs> you know, this is not – it's not going to be, like, there are, you know, the occasional person, like, really hits it big. Um, but even that is sort of fraught because just because you, you know, did really well with one book doesn't mean the next one will and expectation is high. And so it's not really – you know, if you have – if you are lucky enough to have, like, come into a massive inheritance, maybe that's – you can decide this is all I'm going to do. Um, but otherwise, having having something else, which also having something in – else in your life gives you something to write about. You know, like I don't really know how people can not have sort of a life outside of 
writing books. Um, and obviously we all need to make money. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned this because you, you do have to pay the bills and uh, you, you have to love what you're doing, but you also have to recognize that there are also practical necessities and you need to get, you need to take care of those because other people are probably relying on you for those. And, and you have to balance these two things. Your book is kind of about balancing these oh, yeah. two things. <laughs> absolutely yes, we're yeah. not balancing them um, mm-hmm. a, as it happens. So I don't really know quite how to approach this because I don't want to give too much away because I, I guess if I were classifying your book and I don't really like classifying books, it's kind of a horror story, but it's also kind of a mystery, a psychological thriller. How would you classify it? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think that so my, my, my literary agent has described what I do throughout as literary feminist horror, I think is her. Uh, but this one is particularly, it's a, uh, when I pitched it, when I first had the idea, I said, I want to write a postpartum poltergeist story where like a new mom who's, you know, in that terrible first, well, maybe for some people it's not terrible, but very, very stressful and very lonely and isolating. Yeah. Uh, those first few weeks of new parenthood, um, you know, thinks or is being haunted by a literal ghost. Um, and in this case, she thinks or is being haunted by the ghost of Margaret Wise Brown, uh, the author of Goodnight Moon and Runaway Bunny and a whole series of other children's books. Um, and so this m- new mother, Megan, uh, the book opens with her coming home from the hospital with her first baby and sort of her descent into what might be madness, but what might just be a ghost story, sort of a turn style, yeah, uh, where she is being haunted um, in some way or another by Margaret Wise Brown and then the ghost of Margaret Wise Brown's uh, real life female lover, whose name was Michael Strange, who was a poet and an actress and sort of a socialite uh, in the, I guess, first half of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. 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 So uh, one of the interesting things about the book is that uh, Megan, who's the protagonist, has this kind of before and life, before and after life. Uh, she, she's she's writing a PhD, which happens to be about uh, Margaret Weiss Brown and children's literature. And then this kid shows up and she doesn't know how to negotiate these two things because she wants to do the dissertation. That's what her passion is. But then she has this kid. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is tough. And it kind of drives her crazy. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit why you chose Margaret Weiss Brown to be a kind of principal character. And the reason I did this is I have personally read Goodnight Moon about 10,000 times. I have three kids. And I got to tell you, it's a creepy book. It, it is It is a totally creepy book. I mean, you're talking to inanimate objects and it, it it's sort of surreal and weird. I, I, I don't know how else to put it. It's it's like a piece of surrealist art. So why Margaret Weiss Brown? So that it because of that book. Um so I also when I so when my son was born and he came out as like the world's worst sleeper, he's still he's four and a half now and still is like up at four thirty being like, What are we doing today, mom? Um but I one of the the pieces of advice that I got of like how to get your kid to go to sleep more easily was like read them the same thing over and over. And so I was like, okay, we'll read Goodnight Moon over and over. Just sort of, I don't, I, someone gave it to me or I'd picked it up. Um, and that page, Goodnight Nobody, where you say goodnight to all the things. And then all of a sudden there's just a blank white page, Goodnight Nobody. And then the next one is Goodnight Mush, you know, and I was just so interested in it. And I thought like, who, who wrote this? And so I got, um, a, it is, uh, there's a, 
biography of Margaret Wise Brown called Awakened by the Moon. Um, and I'm, I feel terrible. I'm the name of yeah, the author Leonard. It's not Leonard Weisgard because he's an illustrator, but it's Leonard something else. And if you buy, if you get uh, Upstairs House, I have him credited. But anyway, uh, he, so it's a really good biography of Margaret Wise Brown. And I started reading it and I realized she was so different from who I had pictured as the author of these books. Um, and yet it made perfect sense that she had written them. So she was, um, yeah, she was bisexual. She had this 10 year sort of on and off again relationship with a domineering older woman. Uh, she died at 42, um, which just felt like a surprise because I felt like sort of it was the books you think with children's books, like, oh, they're so grandmotherly and writing for children must be something that, you know, like this old woman who's raised a family did, but she never had kids. She was a rabbit hunter, like a beagler. She was an avid rabbit hunter in the beagling club on Long Island. Um, she was a very quirky personality, uh, like the type of person who would forget to pay the electric bills. And she, you know, would, she never, she had this cabin in Maine where she didn't have a refrigerator and just kept bottles of wine in the stream and had all of these, you know, would swim naked in the freezing cold water in Maine. Um, and I was just fascinated by her. And the more I read about her and the more I read particularly about this formative relationship in her life with this older woman, the more I felt like, okay, I really need to write a book about her. What can I do? Um, and at the same time, I was sort of in my own life, clearly, you know, figuring out how to be a mother and sort of how my new life was going to fit into my old. And so it sort of fit, the two pieces fit together pretty perfectly um, because here was a children's book author and, you know, I wanted to write about children and I wanted to write about um, sort of the way that, again, like this woman, Michael Strange, uh, was a very domineering figure and maybe a toxic figure, but also someone Margaret really, really loved. And they seemed to have really loved each other, a really complicated um, relationship. And so I thought, you know, like, okay, well, having a newborn is also a really complicated relationship and something that sort of turns the course of your life in ways that are mostly good, but sometimes not so good. Um, and it just sort of feels like in, invasive is the wrong word because it, but it just is pervasive, I think is a better word. Um, and so I felt like, how can I connect these two stories and how can I put these two things that I'm interested in exploring together? Um, and the upstairs house is what grew out of it. So I saw the relationship between the parallel and the relationship between Margaret Weiss Brown and Michael and Megan and Megan's daughter, Clara, because it's not entirely sure, you know, who has whose interests in mind. And the relationship isn't, it, you know, it's one of love, but there's also a certain amount of antagonism there. And, and you know, it's, it, it's, it's not, you know, again, having had kids myself, I love them, but there were some times when, let me say, I didn't. Oh, absolutely. I think especially with a newborn, because they're so needy and they really can't give you much back. Like, I guess they're cute sometimes, but it takes a few months before they start really, you know, being able to provide much, you know, emotional, I don't know, before, before they give anything back. Um, yeah. And so I, I was also really interested. And I think that even since I started writing, even since my first child was born and I started writing The Upstairs House, I feel like culturally there have been more stories about how maybe those first few months are not sort of all roses. Um, but at the time, I, as a new mother, 
feel, felt like I was surrounded by stories of like, oh, how wonderful. We're so cozy and great now. You know, like everything is so perfect to be the mother of a newborn. Um, and I felt like this is not realistically what it's like. I wish that I had been a little bit more prepared to know like what, what it actually means to take care of like a several week old baby. Um, so that was also part of the inspiration, like wanting to write something that felt more true to my experience and also that um, made other new parents who maybe were having some of these same feelings feel validated in those feelings. Because I think like it's fine to not be obsessed with your newborn um, and total and normal, but I think there are times where we – there's sort of a stigma around saying, you know, like, I really don't like having a newborn. <laughs> yeah, well, it is diapers and vomit and crap and – just sleeplessness and it's it's yeah it's a lot and this is one of the things that comes up in the book is all of this advice that's floating around not only from your mm -hmm. friends and family and but their books and there are all these other things that people are foisting on you telling you this is how you should do it and that that that's how you should do it and i don't know i didn't find most of those terribly useful no no i agree although now it's funny now that i have kids because i i mean i didn't have kids at a young age, sort of overall, um, like I was 29 when my son was born, but I was on a faster track than a lot of my friends. And so now they're having babies and I hear myself saying these things and I'm like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> just, just in terms of giving advice of, you know, like, oh, like just let the baby cry it out or just do this or yeah, do, right. you know, whatever that, it is. And it's yeah, so, that business, yeah. boy, I, whenever a, a friend of mine has a, a child, I only say one thing and that is, when they cry, they're probably, but not necessarily, hungry. That's all I have. I have, I have nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> Work with that. But I, it's, yeah, no, it's just new parents are given, I, I don't know, especially to be a new parent right now, I feel like, and, and it's funny because this book came out um, February 2021, so like mid-pandemic, even though I wrote it beforehand, um, and yeah, I feel like new parents are even more sort of abandoned and accosted by contradictory advice and left without childcare than ever. Yeah, no, I think I think that is uh, very consistent with with my own experience, uh, having had newborns and now having some teenagers. It's yeah, there's no there's no real manual for it. And I find myself surprised all the time at the things that I am saying and asking them to do and yeah. that I'm doing. And I, you know, I always said, well, I would never do this and here I am doing it. And it's very, mm -hmm. it's very, it's, it's a very frustrating thing. So let me ask this, what, what drew you to, well, let's call it horror. Why horror? I, again, horror is not quite right. Psychological thrillers. Why yeah, there yeah. and not something else? You know, I think that I, I was never a, consumer of sort of traditional horror. Um, you know, I, I like, I love the gothic and I love sort of like psychological horror, but I was never a kid who sort of would watch slasher films or, you know, I don't, um, I'm not very widely read within sort of the more traditional horror genre either, but I am very interested in using sort of something concrete to talk about an idea and sort of like writing a book that effectively is a metaphor. Um, yeah, and, and, it, and it is. This is a the book yeah, is, a, is a yeah, metaphor. I think yeah, horror um, is a really good way to talk about sort of like if something. It, it just sort of feels to me if you want to write something that's haunting you emotionally, like why not add an actual haunting? Like, and as a writer, too, plot is. I think there are some people who um, 
go about writing and are very plot driven and know sort of exactly what's going to happen and how the dominoes are going to fall. And I really admire and I'm jealous of people who can write books that way. But for me, sort of plot springs out of things like this of, you know, like, well, what if there's a literal ghost of, you know, your past self and your past work while you're trying to care for a baby? What would happen then? Or um, my first book, What Should Be Wild, is like, what if this idea that women um, sort of it all hinge sort of on the idea that women specifically like teenage girls are seen as both like sort of seductresses and also like little angels, you know, and like, so what if there's a girl who literally has the power to touch something and turn it from life to death and back again? Um, And then my third one, which is I'm working on now is a little bit less sort of one-to-one, but still this idea of like these, when you're writing about feeling or um, some sort of like emotional turmoil to me, like the best way to get a plot moving so that you can sort of explore those things is to literally like take it out of psychology and put it like as a thing on the page. And I think horror is sort of the way that's sort of how horror has always functioned. Yeah. I, I, get, I get just what you mean. And it does work very well on the metaphorical level in the sense that the metaphor becomes real in a way that it can't, if you're just doing kind of straightforward internal monologues in which there's no magical element at all or no supernatural element, they, they come to life on the page and there are real stakes because they're ghosts or monsters and these things are malevolent and they can hurt you just like in real life, how actual people can hurt you. But I, I do, I do like that because it kind of, it, it front loads the metaphor and it makes it apparent to the reader. And I, I, this is just editorialized for a second. People will talk about genre fiction in kind of disparaging tones. I don't like this at all. <laughs> Sorry, that, that just doesn't fly with me because it is true. There is a thing genre fiction and some of it is great, but it's just fiction. <laughs> That's what it is. No, it all is. It's funny too because people talk about literary fiction, and I, I love literary fiction. I read a lot of literary fiction, but that's also a genre. Yeah, like, I just call that drama. I, I just so, that, yeah, the word yeah. for that is drama. And and you know, if you think something is literary, it's probably just a drama where humans interact and they conflict and they're at each other's throats or whatever it is. And there but are it, no ghosts. It's yeah. drama, and there are no ghosts. And so then you have to look a little bit harder for the metaphors. And in your book, which I really liked, uh, it, the metaphors are just. Um, they're, they're more uh, apparent and real because Margaret Weiss Brown appears, or maybe not. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know if she does or not. But Michael appears. Now, the kid is real, and Ben, her husband, is real. But um, I think it's Ben, right? Isn't it Ben? Yeah, Ben re- is real. And these other you know characters, because that's what they are in the book, uh, they appear too. And they actually go about the real world, well, maybe the real world, and they actually do things. Um and I, and I found that uh, it, I, I found it easy to follow because because of that yeah you know, because of that that literary te- that literary technique. But you're not a fan of horror yourself. You don't read it. Oh, I mean, I I like it. I <clears throat> I definitely you know I um I'm a big I love I really like sort of like a slow burn psychological gothic horror. Like I love um, like Shirley Jackson sort of Angela Carter type. Things and I read. I just I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself like I like I said. So I'm the sort of in the genre fiction um, niche at work, and I I feel like I need to sort of caveat that with like I'm in no ways an expert on some of these genres that I've dipped into. Like I'll read sort of what I need to, and I read. I mean, I read a ton of fantasy growing up, and I read um, you know like I've read I've read pretty widely, but 
I never, I wasn't like, I know I have friends who are writers now who really are like diving into traditions that I think I'm just sort of not quite as, you know, like I, I, I pick my lane and I try to f- dig deep in there, but I don't have such a broad understanding. Like when I knew I wanted to write sort of a psychological ghost story, it's like, okay, well, what are the things, you know, like, um, turn of the screw or, uh, what else did I, like, I read a lot of Victorian ghost stories in uh, working on the upstairs house, but I wasn't ever, um, I don't know. I don't feel like that then sort of like turns me into suddenly an expert in even the Victorian ghost stories. You know? So, uh, I think I always just want to caveat that because there are people out there who have such a firm understanding and sort of are so well, well researched and have read, you know, I guess you can never have read everything. Um, but I think it, the book is horror, but I also understand if people who are writing more firmly in the traditions of horror would say like, eh, I don't know if I would classify this as horror, which I would say I, I think that it is like genre bending and it's definitely speculative. Um, but it's difficult to, just like with my first book, people put it as like magical realism. And then like, well, I could go to the traditions of magical realism. I don't know that that's. Yeah. That's just for literary scholars. I don't, I don't involve myself, not to Um, disparage literary scholars, but I don't involve myself much in that kind of thing. Yeah. It just depends on what, and I think a lot of it is about, I, I have come to learn that genre is also a lot about reader expectation. Um, and so I feel people are more open to both of my published books if I say like, yeah, I don't know where I would put it than if I say like, this is a fantasy novel, this is a horror novel, um, just because it, I do, I'm interested in playing with expectation. Um, and there are people who are really here for that. And then there are people who like want sort of their, they want the, the, the beats to hit where they want them to hit. And they're reading the book to sort of take comfort in that. Um, and that's not something that I really do in my work. Yeah. I don't, and I appreciate those kinds of, I'm a big fan of police procedurals. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I read a lot of them and I watch a lot of them and they are isomorphic <laughs> to use a big word. They're really all kind of the same, but yeah. I do take great comfort in that. I like them. But it, yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. It's like, what are you, what are you picking up a book for? And I think that people, turn to books for vastly different reasons at different times. And there are some things that I want to read because I just want to totally escape and some things that are really going to like emotionally move me and some that are going to make me think. And I think it all is a matter of like what, what you're looking for. But I have noticed um, when you, when you do work that doesn't fit into necessarily one of the sort of marketing niches, uh, people's responses are vastly different based on what they think that they're picking up. Right. I can, I can think of a couple of books that I, I have picked up thinking they were one thing and finding out that they were another. And and it, I, it was shocking and not particularly pleasant, but once I got into it, it was okay. I, I, before I let you go, we've taken up some of your time and, and thank you very much for it. I want to ask two more questions. And this is out of my complete ignorance of the way that novelists work. Was this book workshopped? There's a thing you guys do called workshopping, right? What What is that? My, yeah. So my first book, so in, in an MFA program, um, effectively what you are doing, like you have sort of more traditional like literature classes that feel like lit theory and sort of English classes that you might take. Um, but a lot of the time it is just people bringing short stories or excerpts of novels to the table and like a group of maybe 10 people reads them and then they all talk about it in whatever form your workshop leader wants to take. Sometimes you have to just like sit there and say nothing. Sometimes you can respond to people's comments on your work. Um, so my first book, 
I wrote during graduate school. And so that one went through sort of a ton of different iterations. This one, I wrote the first, I think like 70 pages. I sent it to my agent. She came back with comments and then I wrote the rest. Um, And then I had like two or three writer friends who I trust um, and who sort of I felt knew what I was going for. I had them read it and then we went out and got it to a publishing house. And like, there's always an editor who's involved, you know, at the publishers. Um, But yeah, this one was, was a lot more streamlined of a process for Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. And then my, 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 it's not quite my final question, but have you had uh, responses from readers and have they been pleasurable or is it? Yeah. You know, they've been mixed. Um, I think that there are some people who, both people who have kids and don't have kids who really don't want to read about the difficulties of having kids and find it boring or disturbing. Um, and it, I mean, I think that a lot of the thoughts that Megan has in the upstairs house are disturbing. They're supposed to be yep. disturbing. Um, you know, it, it, my goal there was to take sort of some normal feelings and then sort of try to push them. Like when you're writing a book, again, nobody wants to read about like, oh, it's so annoying that my kid is crying, but if you can sort of like explode that feeling and push it a little bit, that's what makes good fiction, in my opinion. Um, and so I think there are people who think like, you know, this is child abuse, this is terrible. Uh, and then there are other people who are, it, structurally it is a, a, a confusing book because you jump back and forth between um, sort of real real life, quote unquote, Megan, and uh, excerpts of her thesis about Margaret Wise, Wise Brown. And, yeah, with footnotes, and then Margaret Wise Brown sort of historical sections, and then there's also sort of weird like dream like psychological breaks where it all mixes together. And so there are people who are like, I'm just not here for the amount of work it takes to read this book. Um, but I also have gotten responses. Um, you know, the majority of responses I think are people who say this feels really true emotionally to my experience of trying to have either a career or be an artist um, or sort of like just balance a life and also have really small kids. Um, people who have read, you know, our Margaret Wise Brown aficionados have been pretty like that. That to me, I take a lot of pride in the fact that the people who know are are interested in her life and have researched her like, yeah, I see you did your your research there because everything she does, uh, both she and Michael in this book, clearly like the conversations I've invented um, and there are, you know, motivations for things that I came up with because they're characters in the novel, not the real them. Um, But it's really based in a lot of research. And so like the places that they go, the people they see, the things they wear, the food they eat, you know, like I really, Margaret Wise Brown left a lot of um, journals. She was a journaler. And so like, it's hard to get into her psychologically, but you can trace where she was, you know, (laughs) and while she wasn't in, you know, a a Chicago apartment, um, I've tried to sort of make her as, as realistic and as sort of true to who I imagine her to be as possible. And so getting responses where people are like, yeah, this is cool. feels really good. I'll tell you what I do when I read a novel that I really like by a new novelist is I write them an email. <laughs> I tell them I like their novel and oftentimes right, I get a response. <laughs> like, the best I- thing you can do. Oh yeah. No, that is, I, it feels at a certain point, you know, like you're doing, you, you sit there and you write the book and it takes years usually to write the book and edit the book and go through production. And then maybe you have a little team working on the book with you, but then it's like out. And then all, you know, you usually, you know, you get like a few weeks of reviews um, and like people will respond to it maybe, but hearing, you know, someone taking the time 
to write a personal note, like I'll always respond. Oh, yeah, and it no, always I like it a lot. Really yeah. I, I had a lengthy correspondence with this Israeli uh, author who wrote a book called The Hilltop, which I very highly recommend. Go read The Hilltop. And it was great. I was just so happy to be in contact with him. It was a terrific book. So uh, thank you very much for your time today, Julia. And uh, our traditional final question on the New Books Network generally is this. What are you working on now? Can you give us a little preview? Yeah. So I am right now working on, I'm pivoting, sort of, but not really thematically. Um, I am working on a book about two female musicians in Venice in the 18th century who study at the Ospedale della Pietà under Antonio Vivaldi. Um, And it is also sort of a horror story. It's like a Faustian story of, you know, like, what will you sacrifice to get better at your music. Um, but it, I also have sort of pitched it. It's almost like, um, not necessarily mean girls, but like sort of teenage girls catfighting in Baroque Venice. Uh, but it's been a lot of fun to write and research. And I was actually, I was supposed to be in Venice this week. Uh, and then Omicron canceled my plans, but hopefully I'll get there soon to keep researching. Um, but yeah, so that's well. That's good luck with that project. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm a historian, so I'm always into. And actually, I read historical fiction. Speaking of genre fiction, I like historical and this fiction. Like historical fiction horror. Yeah, sort of right. I like it very much. Anyway. Well, so let me tell everybody we've been talking to Julia Fine, graduated from Grinnell College in 2010. We're very proud of her, and we've been talking about her book, The Upstairs House. It's out from Harper Collins. It was published in 2021. Julia, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. Absolutely. My pleasure.